We're so glad that you're listening in again with your week with St. Luke's. Our podcast this week delves into Mark chapter 7, but an overview of Jesus, who is a critiquer of culture, maybe not just the outside culture of the empire, but also a critiquer of the culture of the religious societies, but also maybe a critiquer of the culture of us. So let's, let's go in and dig deeper as we hear about Mark's gospel and the Jesus we meet there. Hello, friends. And welcome to this seventh week of our study of the Gospel of Mark. Today we look at Jesus' critique of culture, how Mark's Jesus confronts ungodly systems. Last week, you'll remember that we talked about Jesus' authority and what kind of kingdom it is that Jesus sets up, and that it's very different in structure, in content, in makeup, In all ways, it's very different from the kingdoms of earth, such as the one that we see in King Herod, who beheads John the Baptist. Jesus, of course, by contrast, invites people to a picnic in the middle of nowhere and feeds thousands of people just from blessing and breaking a few loaves of bread. But it's not just that Jesus sets up a different type of kingdom. Jesus very vocally and vehemently opposes injustices in the culture at large, demonstrating how the culture of the kingdom of God is meant to operate in complete contrast. Let's look today at what we have. Jesus first asks his followers to completely reorient themselves, which means to turn their attention to something they may not have seen before. For instance, the first thing that Jesus does after he's been baptized, after he has wandered in the wilderness and tempted by the devil, when Jesus comes back to Galilee, his first proclamation is, repent, the kingdom of God is arriving. Now, it's very important that we see that repent and the kingdom of God go hand in hand. Why? Because the word repent in Greek is metanoia, which literally means to change your mind, or we might even say to have a change of heart. And so to repent is to change directions, to change course, or to change the mode of operating. So the fact that we see Jesus telling people, repent, the kingdom of God is arriving, we can almost see him taking someone by the shoulders and turning them around so that they can see the kingdom of God, so that they can see where it is. So already from the very get-go, Jesus wants people to look at something new in order to see how God wants people to actually live here on earth. The kingdom of God is arriving here in our midst, and you have to change direction in order to properly see it. In chapter 2, Jesus is criticized, and it'll be very interesting. We'll see that there's going to often be an exchange of criticisms. Jesus' opponents will criticize him, and he will turn it right back on them. So in chapter 2, we see that one of the critiques of Jesus by his opponents is that he eats with sinners, that he actually not just deigns to heal them or to forgive them, but he fellowships with people who are noted to be sinners. And Jesus tells them he didn't come here for the healthy, 
but for the sick. Meaning, the whole point of God's blessing, the whole point of God's presence, isn't to put a stamp of justification on the systems that are already in play. He's not here to make all of those people feel even better about themselves. He's actually here to bring up the sick into good health. He's actually there to bring sinners into forgiveness, to bring the hungry into being filled. So what he's saying by I'm here for the sick, not the healthy, is that he didn't come to make us feel better about the systems that we have that distinguish between who's sick and who's healthy, but rather to bring all people closer to himself. And then finally, Jesus tells a little bit of a parable. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But you put new into fresh. I think that what Mark is demonstrating here is very much about the systems of the world, about the systems not just of the world as in the Roman Empire, but even the religious systems that although many of the things that the people had received were from God, from the law, from religious tradition that was certainly meant to do good, it's very important that we don't mistake the what we're using to get to something for the thing itself. And so Jesus is saying that there are some things we do that just aren't helpful. There are some things that are permitted, but they're not going to actually bring about the kingdom of God. And so no one puts new wine into old wineskins. We're not going to take and put the kingdom of God into the structures and cultures of the world that keep people separated and keep people down, that keep them sick or keep them unforgiven. No, we don't just need the kingdom of God put into our old structures. What we need is an entirely new structure. We need a new wineskin to hold this new wine. And throughout Mark's gospel, we're going to see Jesus constantly wanting to replace those old structures with new ones so that the new ones can hold the miraculous. They can hold the equal. They can hold the kingdom of God. And so first, he has to sort of dismantle the old cultures. He says, essentially, you've kind of got it backwards. He says this to some of the religious leaders in chapter 7 of Mark. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain they worship me, teachings as doctrines, the precepts of human beings. Jesus said, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. But you say that if a person says to his father or mother, anything of mine that you might be helped by is to be given to God, you no longer permit one to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. What Jesus is, is talking about here is two things. Number one, 
We have actual commandments that God has given us to do that build up the type of community we want to really live in as human beings. One of these he gives as an example is to honor your father and mother. That's something that we know irrevocably is something that God expects of us. However, you've taken another part of the law that's a little bit uh, less urgent and you've used it as a way of not keeping this particular commandment. So the law does say that if you have vowed to give a certain money or a certain gift to God, that you should keep your vow. That is absolutely true. But on the one hand, instead of, it, it's not meant that you promise a vow to God so that you don't have to help someone else. So if the choice is, Honor your father and mother by helping them, by giving them food or shelter or caring for them in their old age. It is not a choice between doing that or giving the gift to God. Jesus says we have to prioritize people. And sometimes the best way to give to God is to care for others. In fact, I think Jesus usually argues that is the best way to demonstrate our love and honor and commitment to God is by caring for the people around us. On the other hand, another thing that this passage suggests is that the religious culture wanted more money to be given to its own structures. So, of course, they're going to say, you should set aside this money and give it to God, meaning give it to the religious authorities to do with what they see fit, rather than helping people in your community, rather than caring for your elderly parents. And so in both um, possibilities of translating this passage, we see that Jesus is saying, you've kind of got it backwards. God cares very much about people who have less. God cares very much for people who cannot care for themselves. And God is not going to take it as a gift to himself if you give money to a temple culture or money to a synagogue, and yet you don't help actual flesh and blood people. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, as soon as he finishes talking about these religious customs and how we can confuse um, tradition with God's actual commandments, and Jesus says this, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person which defiles, but the things that come out of a person are what defiles. For from within, out of the human heart, come the evil thoughts, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Notice how Jesus is making a, a not-so-subtle differentiation between the inside and the outside. It's not what you do on the outside that is making something bad or good. It's about where it comes from. So is it wrong to give a gift to the temple or the synagogue? Is it wrong to care for the priests? No. But if you're doing that instead of or so that you don't have to help other people, then it's coming out of a place that Jesus would say is defiled because it's coming out of something that's not love and not honor. 
And so this is how Jesus demonstrates that the structures of the world get it backwards. They go with what is permitted. It is permitted for you to give a gift to the temple instead of caring for your parents. But Jesus's words tell us, no, we must look at the intention of our heart to let us know if what, what we're doing is pleasing to God. And if you're giving a gift out of love and you're also fulfilling other types of commandments like honor your father and mother or caring for your neighbor and loving them as yourself, then you'll know that you are in the kingdom of God and you are not in the corrupt structures of the world. Jesus will actually give his disciples a lesson based on a fig tree, and it demonstrates what Jesus is getting at by the culture that he tends to criticize the most in the Gospel of Mark, which is the temple culture. Now, it's very important that we pause here for a moment and understand that this does not mean that Jesus is, is criticizing the temple itself or what the temple originally represents to the people of Israel that this is God, a place um, that is devoted to the worship of God and a place where God's presence um, abides with the people in a tangible way. None of those things Jesus is in the least bit criticizing in Mark's gospel. What he's criticizing is exactly what he just said to the religious leaders. You've mistaken, you've confused, you've gotten backwards. What comes first? The temple itself is not the important thing, the stones, the structure. It's about what it was intended, how it was intended to be used as a place to worship God, to pray for people to gather and feel community in God's presence. All those things are good and important. But if we flip those things and we make the people who are in the temple less important than the temple itself, now we've gotten it wrong. And so we see um, in Mark chapter 11, a little bit of a parallel, not a little bit, but a parallel between a fig tree and the temple. Notice how Mark staggers these two images of the temple and the fig tree. And I do believe that by this type of staggering of going back and forth, we're meant to see a parallel. So listen to the story in these four parts. He entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. First and foremost, this is when Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday. And what an anticlimax. He enters Jerusalem, comes to the temple, and just looks around and leaves. In the other Gospels, this is when he actually purges the temple. But here, no, he just looks at it almost very unimpressed. But notice he does not stay in Jerusalem, but goes back to Bethany. He does not dwell there. He doesn't stay there. It's some place for him to go and be for a while, but it is not Jesus's place of residing while he's there for the Passover. The second part of the story comes on the next day. So remember, they've left Bethany. And now on the next day, when they've left Bethany to go back to Jerusalem, Jesus became hungry. And seeing a leafy fig tree in the distance, he went to see if there was anything on it. And coming to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat 
fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Notice how very interesting this is. It's not the season for figs. So why would Jesus be looking for figs? He sees that it's leafy. He sees that it's full, that it has some potential to have something on it that might offer him nourishment or relief from his hunger. And yet, for as beautiful as this fig tree is, for as full and lush, it has nothing to offer to a poor man walking along the side of the road. And notice how he says, the the text says, and he answered and said to it. What was he answering? Something the tree had said. The tree in its leafy beauty, but with no fruit said, I have nothing to give you. And Jesus answers the tree's lack and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Hmm. Then Jesus continues, and they come to Jerusalem. And it says, Jesus entered the temple and began to throw out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changer and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not let anyone carry goods through the temple. And he taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. Interesting. Notice how he starts in the temple in verse 11. And then he curses the fig tree. And then he goes back to the temple and he clears everyone out of it and says, you are not using it appropriately. And then what happens? And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. This is one of the most artistic things that Mark does by sandwiching these texts together, the fig tree and the temple. He's definitely meaning for us to use the fig tree to interpret what's going on in the temple. Notice what's happening in the temple. People are being exploited. They've come from miles and miles in order to worship. And they're being sold lots of things at enormous prices. There are people setting up shop inside God's temple in order to make a profit, in order to fleece, if you will, the people coming to worship. And Jesus says, no, this wasn't a place for us to get something but for us to give something. This is the place where people come to worship God and you could be here giving and yet you are taking. And he says, no, this is meant to be a house of prayer, a place where people come and feel the embrace of God. And you have distorted this. And so he empties it. He basically lets it wither. He takes out all of the trade, all of the business going on there. And so very much like what happens to the fig tree happens to the temple. Now, of course, we also know that Mark is being written after the temple in Jerusalem has fallen in 70 uh, CE. 
after the siege by the Romans. So it may be that he is interpreting that as some sort of a reaction for this defilement or this corruption of the temple culture. In fact, I think it's a good possibility because Jesus actually goes on to say that. And so there's a fabulous story that Mark's gospel tells. The widow's might, but it's not what you think it is. Now, so often we've heard this story that there's a widow and she gives everything she has and that the takeaway of the story is be like the widow. Give even when it hurts, even when it's your last bit. Be generous with what you have. But when we read Mark the way we've seen Mark lay out his story, like we saw with the fig tree and the temple, we arrive at a very different conclusion when we read the story of the widow's might. Mark's text says in chapter 13, as he was teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and seats of honor in the synagogues and at banquets. But who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Now what's interesting here is he's saying that these are people who have this big religious tradition. They like long prayers. They like long robes. They like to have everything done just so. But the whole structure, the whole culture that they're perpetuating takes from those who don't have much. And because of this, these people will receive a greater condemnation because they orchestrated the community of God in order to suppress people who were in need rather than to be God's instrument of relief and of justice. And so notice right here he says, beware of them. Here's what they like to do. But really what they do is they devour widows' houses. They take the last thing that these poor people have and they call it religious. They call it godly behavior. Now, notice what happens next. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, she put in all she owned, all she has to live on. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, that's the kind of faith I'm looking for, or that's the kind of commitment I want you to have. Be like the widow, go and do likewise. He does not say any of those things, but rather he's pointing at the structure of the temple culture that would take a widow's last cent and leave her nothing to live on, why is this culture that is originally meant to bring glory to God something that is oppressing a poor widow with nothing left? Somehow, We've gotten it backwards, Jesus is saying. It should be that all those people putting into this treasury, that should go to support people like the widow. 
It should go for her comfort and care. She should be rejoicing in the fact that she may not have a husband anymore, but has a community that cares for her well-being. But Jesus says, look, they all gave extra, something over what they have, and they still have plenty, but she gave everything that she has. And who's thinking about her? Who's thinking about the least of these? And I don't think he likes the answer because in the next chapter, it says, as he was going out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, teacher, look at the wonderful stones and large buildings here on the temple campus. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, do you see these buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. This right here is that gesture towards the temple is not going to be here forever. It is going to be crushed by the Romans. This culture that we've built up that keeps puffing up the ones who already have so much and putting down and trampling on the ones who don't have anything left, this is not going to last forever and we won't like the results of it. Do you see how Jesus's condemnation here is very much like what happened to the fig tree? Jesus said, do you see it? It looks beautiful. Look at the beautiful stones. Look at the large buildings. Look at the leafy branches. But there is nothing here that offers nourishment to someone who's hungry, to someone in need. There's nothing here that offers encouragement to someone who's downtrodden. This, this temple, which is built for the worship of God and as a place of prayer, is so full of people making money that there's no peaceful place for anyone to connect with each other or God. So we can clearly see Jesus's critique of the culture here lodged at the temple resembles very much what we saw with the fig tree. And the criticism is always going to be the same. What are you giving? What are you offering? The fig tree, although leafy and beautiful, had nothing to offer, even when the presence of God was standing right in front of it. And the temple, built to God, built to be beautiful, to be inspiring, to be a place of welcome, is offering nothing. And of course, we know that throughout the gospel story, it's this very temple culture that opposes Jesus and his teachings opposes the fact that he is elevating people beyond just mere rule keepers and reminding them that they are made in God's image. In fact, Jesus will tell a story when they try to trap him into a question about economics and should we pay taxes? And they want to lure him into all of this cultural uh, controversy. And they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, well, Caesar's picture is on the coin. It's got his image on it. And if it has his image on it, give him what's his. Money is not the thing that God is so terribly concerned about, but what bears the image of God? Human beings. Be more worried about how you treat human beings than about who you give your money to. Or make sure that that's your concern with your money, that it's going to actually I'll help people to live into the image of God. 
in fullness and health because remember Jesus said I came for the sick so what do you have to offer is what Jesus is asking and if you don't have anything to give sooner or later you will be shut down sadly it's not only the temple culture or the Roman culture or any of those other ones that Jesus will critique, but even the culture of his own followers. And I believe this is a story that Mark tells not just to give us a window into the life of Jesus and the early community, but maybe even for what is happening as the community solidifies, as the church really takes shape after the time of Jesus. The church has a tendency to also do what the Jewish religious authorities did and what Roman authorities did, and that's to mistake the means for the end. That the end is something beautiful, the goal, how we want human beings to live fully, and rules and laws, and those are there in order to help us do that. But hear this story of Jesus and Bethany when he's anointed by a woman. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster jar, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the jar open and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? This perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's performed a good service to me. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that which this woman has done shall be told in her memory. So here's what's really interesting. Remember how at the beginning we talked about how Jesus said it's not what's outside a person or what's on the outside or what, even what they do on the outside that makes them clean or pure or good. It's what it comes out of. It's what's on the inside. So notice how Jesus critiques the temple culture. Why? Because it preys on the poor. And it gives a path, a pass to those who have more money. It basically just goes to continually inflate um, the temple um, authorities, but doesn't actually do the work of bringing God's justice into the world and of being a place of welcome. And so it's interesting that in that critique, it was you're oppressing the poor. Here, the disciples are saying, we should be concerned with the poor. And they fuss at this poor woman who has anointed Jesus as if for his burial. And Jesus criticizes his disciples and said, you've gotten it backwards. Why? Because they weren't looking at the intention. They wanted to, again, solidify something into rules and make the rules the thing rather than seeing certain rules as principles in order to accomplish the good that God wants us to do. Whereas, obviously, they had been listening when Jesus had criticized the temple culture and said, why would this kind of place with so much money 
ask the very last cent of an impoverished widow. There's something wrong with that. So what happens is the disciples want to take that teaching of Jesus and make it its own solidified steadfast rule. And what they do by making the rule the God, instead of using those kinds of principles in order to in, in order to bring about God's justice and God's righteousness in the world, here they actually abuse this poor woman and yell at her and criticize her even though she's done a lovely thing for Jesus. Even though of all the people in Mark's gospel, she seems to be the only one who truly understands what he's going to give fully. And so what does she do? She gives fully, lavishly to Jesus. And so this is a word, I believe, that is aimed at the church very specifically. We are not different than that temple culture. We are not different than the Roman Empire in that we can sometimes not keep the first things first or keep the main thing the main thing. And sometimes we do look at the things that are outside of a person and think that those are what defile them rather than taking the time to examine the beauty of a human heart or to question our own heart that may be filled with things that are unloving, that are ungodly, or that do not wish the best for our neighbor and aren't willing to work for the best for our neighbor. Indeed, this critique that Jesus levies at his disciples is, I believe, a critique levied at his disciples throughout time, which includes us. And so this is one of the things that we must always be looking inward because we know that it's the things inside us that either prove that we're corrupted and that we have strayed from the path and lost our way, or it's those things inside that birth beautiful deeds like the one that this woman does for her master who's about to die. Anyway, thank you so much for being here this week. Next time will be our very last study time together, and we will look at the encapsulation, the fullness of discipleship. And I feel like leaving it here with the disciples' mouths agape as they thought they were giving the right answer, and it turns out it wasn't. I think this will be the perfect place for us to start when we look at what does it mean to be one of Jesus' disciples in the Gospel of Mark. I hope you'll be blessed this week, and I look forward to our conversation next week. Hey, what's up, family? Uh, we are here with all of your pastors and the Reverend Dr. Evie Arnold for our Office Hours conversation. And we today we'll be talking about the topic of Jesus and the Outsiders and talking about Mark chapter 7. So let's hop right into it. All right, so in this week's lecture, we talk about Jesus's actions throughout Mark's gospel, where Jesus directly criticizes and challenges the dominant culture of his day. And that's both the sort of Roman Empire culture, um, but even like the Jewish temple culture. Um, Jesus brings some really harsh criticisms uh, to these, these worlds. And so I guess one of my first questions is, when we meet this highly critical Jesus that's 
really confrontational. Um, how do we recognize this version of leadership and teaching with what we know about persuasive and constructive communication? I mean, we've all had enough of those, you know, ethics and community building courses. How do we reconcile this confrontational Jesus with, you know, trying to lead um, in ways that are like constructive and, you know, team building? What do you What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> I think of a good friend of mine and all of ours who's a clergy person in Florida. I'm just going to say his name, Scott Smith. Um, Scott, I hope you're listening. Um, who um, in balances this. He comes mm-hmm. across as someone who's incredibly confrontive like this and very like not afraid to speak up and say the hard thing and say the critical thing. But he does so... If you get to know him, you can hear him. If you only hear him in spurts, it feels like it's all the time. But he balances it really well mm. with being able to step back and then listen and go deeper and, and hear that. And he only does that when, when he recognizes it's time. Like mm. there is a time, I think, when it's time to critique and to be honest. Mm. And then there's time to build consensus and and try and be, you know, team building and things like that. And I think leadership is the balance of those two things and learning when and listening to the culture and learning when 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 which kind of leadership is necessary. That that's just to me. Mm-hmm. And I and Scott Smith, I love you. <laughs> Thank you for teaching me that, actually. Yeah. yeah. Just while he's still being spoken about. Whenever he speaks kind of in that way, to me, I sense an urgency. Yes. It feels like he doesn't have time for the pleasantries mm-hmm. and whatever needs to be said needs to be said in this moment. I, I mean, I have to say that this Jesus may have felt exactly that way. Absolutely. The matters that we're dealing with, the things that are happening are so urgent that we don't have time for the niceties of how to say this. But what love is, is to go ahead and say the thing so we can deal with the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and some of that is the reason we're doing this series this year <laughs> is we often have gotten so comfortable, those of us who grew up in the church, mm. those of us who are faithful, <clears throat> weekly worship attenders, went to Sunday school, go to Bible study, do all of that, it can it can eventually become rote and it can eventually become comfortable. And that that's not necessarily good for our discipleship um, to get too comfortable with with the stories. And so we've got to have those moments where someone speaks into our life and wakes us up for a second. Mm-hmm. And and it is fig- figuring out those moments because if you you know if you if you take this approach to a person in you know the wrong point in their life or their story, it can be damaging. But if you choose that moment wisely, um, as I imagine Jesus is, and and as folks like Scott do, um, it can be transformational. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget. Um, it, we're going to make this whole podcast about Scott. You better be listening. <laughs> um, he he's going to kill me. He, he spoke. He spoke at a at a. It, it kind of feels. It, it's it's interesting because we were just talking about the the passage here where Jesus says, "You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition." Mm-hmm. Um, Scott, I once heard him speak at a district clergy gathering um, where he talked about uh, the passage, I believe it's a proverb that says, a fool returns to his folly like a dog returns to his vomit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 
he basically challenged the church to quit doing things the same way because half of the stuff that we do is vomit. Mm-hmm. And we need to quit coming back to that. Mm-hmm. And, and the, you know, that, that's stuff that we need to, to hear at times. And so, so I think it's, but, and, and so whether or not everyone was ready to hear that, it was, it woke some people up to go, you know, maybe we don't have to hold on to everything so tightly. And maybe we do need to, to think about things differently. So I do think we get kind of stuck in this kind of, religious slash church life matrix where it feels like there's a script that just like when you have interactions with people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think I, I had an interaction recently where it felt like we both kind of were like, there's a script here that we're supposed to be <laughs> yeah. going by. You want it? Yeah. But neither of us like it's, it was weird, but I but yeah. I mean and it's the same thing with 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 the Pharisees here kind of I think, right? There's a there's a way we approach these things. There's a way we talk about these things. But when somebody mm-hmm. Like you were kind of saying, approaches it in a way or talks about it in a way that, that, that doesn't fit that script, it shakes us up. Which, like you said, is bad for our discipleship because we forget how to actually talk to people. Right. Yeah. Right? Because, because we're looking to, to, to speak into that script, mm-hmm. to say the right things that a religious person or a Christian is supposed to say in this mm-hmm. moment to check the boxes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting listening to you guys talk about that reminds me of something um, when I think about when we get angry and when we confront things, like you think about someone who always has to speak to the manager, you know, <laughs> they're they're usually angry about something that upsets or disturbs them right. for their own personal benefit. Mm. But in all of these places, when Jesus is confronting systems mm. and confronting people, it's because he's doing it on behalf of someone else. Right. It's not for right. himself. And so what I what I think is interesting <clears throat> is you're talking about like our discipleship and how we, we get into these patterns. I wonder if it's just this sort of hyper-individualized sort of mindset that we get into you know, as especially in American Christianity, that this is somehow, you know, about me. Mm. But when we look at Jesus's model, like all of the point of discipleship isn't about me. It's actually to direct myself Mm. towards others and on their Mm. behalf. And so what would it take to break us out of those molds that y'all are talking about? What, What do we need in order to start seeing, you know, our role as disciples as being on behalf of? Others. So I, I think of it in, and for me personally, there's an egocentric way of doing things and there's a theocentric way of doing things. And I prefer to do things the way I want to do things, right? I want to, I want this justice for me. Mm-hmm. And so daily it's a struggle to make it God-centered, theocentric. Um, for me, that's like a high Christology. Um, Jesus is my Lord. And so, um, so how do I correct my thoughts and behaviors into a way that's not about me and mine, that's about what God would have me do. And I'll, I'll, then, then how I do that, well, I struggle with it, but is I think of the, when I think of the Lord's Prayer, it's the, not the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, but the prayer, one of the prayers that Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Yeah. So when I, personally, when I catch myself, which is often, I'm thinking more about me and mine, and I want righteousness for me and justice for me, I stop. I try to stop and think about well, not my will, but your will. I'm being egocentric, and I need to think more about these others. And that, in and of itself, can be hypercritical of the culture, yeah. of the systems, <laughs> because it's all about well, this book is better for me, and how I can be a better profiter or whatever speaker or whatever. You know, um, so. I don't know. 
And that's so it's interesting because it's it's hard because so much of what we are talking about as a church right now is what we each need to do. Mm -hmm. So so it's it's being able to to recognize that that there's work that we do do that is is individual. Mm -hmm. Um, It's that learn, live, love, lead that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But when when you get to the love and the lead part, actually the live, love, and lead part, Mm -hmm. and even I mean, there 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 is work that I do. And so it's not completely discounting my individuality or myself mm-hmm. or my ego or my being, mm-hmm. but it's it's shaping myself in a way that I am standing in the gap for other people. Because it does require me to do some self-care and to do some, some work on myself yes. mm-hmm. to be able to take that theocentric mindset healthily. Mm-hmm. Because there are people who 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 set themselves aside so much that they destroy themselves, and they're no good to themselves or anyone else. And so it's figuring out how you you get yourself ready to be the person who stands in the gap the way Jesus is. But you get yourself ready by learning Jesus. Yes. Mm-hmm. To, by being shaped and molded mm-hmm. into the image of Jesus mm-hmm. and into the person of Jesus as best we can. And it's moving towards that. It's not getting myself ready for me. Yes. And my and and Jesus did teach us to pray that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thy <laughs> kingdom come. Thy will <laughs> be done right. on earth as it is right. in heaven. Mm-hmm. Which means one of the ways we do it is to be able to step back and go. This thing that we're talking about, the script that we're is this a kingdom script? Is this kingdom yeah. value? Mm-hmm. Is this is this a kingdom issue that we're arguing about, or that we're picking about, or you know? I'm going to just go ahead and say, we joked about how pastors should get a, a once a month, be able to read all the comments and emails, <laughs> kind of like they do on like, what is that, Jimmy Fallon? Yeah, Jimmy yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I sometimes want to want us all to step back, both, both pastor, lady, staff alike, and mm. to be able to go, wait a minute, even just spending my time worrying about those things, is that mm. a kingdom of God thing? Mm-hmm. Is that bringing the kingdom of God on earth? Because you know what? It probably isn't, yeah. and it's probably petty, and it's more about me, <laughs> and I should just let it go. Yeah. Um, and I think that retraining ourselves, and that's where mm-hmm. the learning mm-hmm. is an individual thing, mm-hmm. but it's shaping into the people of Christ for the community, right? Mm-hmm. for the community work of live, for the community rehearsal of love, for mm-hmm. the community work of lead. And I think, yeah. you know, being able to ask ourselves on a regular basis, this thing that's bothering me, as we turn to wonder, like Parker Palmer, to ask ourselves, is does this have to do with the kingdom of God? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But as you mentioned, king, uh, uh, community, Jen, I think it's also notable to say all these folks in chapter seven that Jesus is kind of being critical of are folks that Jesus is in community with in one way or the other. Yes. Yes. And, so, right. and, that, and that doesn't right. go to say that we can just be rough unnecessarily right. and, and harm folks that we're in community with. No. But maybe mm-hmm. before you want to critique somebody, maybe before you want to speak into their life as if you know maybe you should be in community with them. Right, because right. it's relationship. I right. was thinking about that. Like, yeah. like, like um, Scott has relationships with people who where he can speak in in this way, and um, and Jesus cultivated relationships. I mean, he he may have been part of the Pharisee group before he started his ministry, and um, and I and I think back to Jen, your leadership, uh, a calling together groups of people for shalom, mm. to be in a deeper community, to mm. know each other better, so that you can have those more difficult conversations, right. um, and and not only critique 
the culture or whatnot, but also then allow us to be a more fully beloved community. Those kind of experiences cultivate those relationships that allow for a yes. deeper word being spoken. Because so often the the sort of pattern we've seen is the church wants to critique the world without engaging it, yeah. without actually mm-hmm. embracing the good, without actually being of service to mm-hmm. the world. And then our message mm-hmm. just falls it just falls in between because that gap is so far between us and them. Right. You know, and right. that's that's the sad thing is it's not that we don't have something to offer. We just don't get close enough to be able to hand it over. Right, because well, I don't know you. And critiquing is a conversation. Mm-hmm. So it means there's feedback that comes back. You don't just drop a bomb and then just, walk away. you know, walk yeah. away. Okay, I well, said what I had to say. Yeah. And that's how I felt. Right. And that's, I'm done. It means sitting back and listening and reciprocating for the, for the purpose of last week, healing mm-hmm. and and taking authority of healing fully and 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 over evil and that's where i think sometimes we we do forget that being in community means i'm going to say this but i am going to either give back or offer cuz jesus didn't just drop these critiques of of the of the synagogue and the religious authorities he then gave his life mm-hmm. for right. it mm-hmm. right. he he was like mm-hmm. and i'm willing to die mm-hmm. to show you how it looks. Right. And we are more often really to critique and run. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it's, it's so great too, because at the, at, in the, the middle of chapter seven here in Mark, Jesus talks about what actually defiles people, what actually makes for, for sin. And he's like, it's not the stuff on the outside. It's the stuff that's on the inside. He's like, you know, it's not anything that you touch. It's not anything you come in contact with. It's the stuff that's inside of you. Mm-hmm. And I think that what you're talking about is we have to get close enough and stay long enough to be able to even, first of all, discern those things, but yeah. to even help people process that. That's not something you can lob a grenade at. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that means, are you willing, if you point this out, are you willing to sit there and help someone deal with it? Are you right. willing to sit down and unpack it and share the stories and hear where did this, where did it even come from to begin with? Mm-hmm. And that's a requirement of time and attention. And I think those are two things that in our society right now, and the church is not excluded from that, we are short of both of time and attention. Mm-hmm. And I think we would have to cultivate those things before we would even be in a place where we can help people deal with, well, what truly defiles us. Mm -hmm. Because that's what brings healing. Mm -hmm. That's what brings reconciliation. That's what brings redemption. It's Mm -hmm. that hard, difficult, difficult Mm -hmm. No, Jad, I'm sorry. It's posting something on Facebook, (laughs) telling someone how wrong they are. That's what brings redemption. Okay. Well, and and, <laughs> and, there, and therein lies the difference, that individual work, that's what everybody says. You go back to what everyone has said. It's about why do you say these things? If, I, if I'm saying it for the kingdom of God, I'm saying it for the healing and salvation and wholeness of another person or of a situation. If I'm just saying it to make myself feel better, then it's mm-hmm. not, then it's not then it's not the authority of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to our conversation last week about what prophets look like. Mm. Right. Is some people will say, I want to be a prophet, and so I'm going to say all of these prophetic, I'm using air quotes, things, but it really is just to make myself feel better and to get my opinion out there. And if there is 
pushback or violence <laughs> than there is, oh, well, now I'm being attacked. Whereas right. that's not what we see in our true prophets. We mm. see that willingness to really put their life on the line because it's something they've wrestled with and they've struggled with. And it, it may not make them feel better to say it, actually. Um, you're you're going to have turmoil to, to speak those kinds of truths. So I think that starting point of I want to be a prophet is your first red flag. Correct. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. the first thing that makes yep. you make go it well, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but that. then also thinking, thinking still about uh, the idea of the things that 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 inspire sin being the things on the inside, or things that make sin being the things on the inside and not the outside. And like you said, Evie, being able to stay with somebody and process those things. When I think of the people that I can do that with and the profound love and connection that exists with those folks. And in thinking about the situation, like thinking about something like Shalom or thinking about, like, it, I think that the folks that we love, we want to be there for the people that we love when they want to bring us uh, how someone else has hurt them. Mm. But when it's me and Jad and I go, Jad, I'm deeply affected by the, this thing that I experienced with you that hurt me. Mm-hmm. Jad's ability to then look at me and say, tell me more about that. I want to be in that space where mm-hmm. I hurt you with you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is kind of what Jesus is doing. He's, he's standing there with this community, with these folks that he loves, and he's saying, yo, y'all are causing harm, right? Mm-hmm. right? And I don't, think, I don't think that any of these folks had the capacity to sit with Jesus in that and continue to dig deeper and ask questions. But that, that just profound love and connection that's there. And that's what we're called to ultimately. We're called mm-hmm. to, to look at people who are saying, yo, you are harming me and say, I want to be in that space with you and mm-hmm. figure out mm-hmm. what healing looks like there. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's interesting because that is the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. That's the work yeah. that we're supposed to be doing through our DEI group and through yeah. other things, well, through the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, is is to do, it's not just awareness, it's, it's awareness and advocacy that moves towards beloved community, which yeah. beloved community is something that we use so often and we forget that it finds itself in the gospel. Mm-hmm. It, it's not something that we made up. It finds itself in, in Jesus and the kingdom of God. And we, we forget that. And moving towards that is the harder, harder work. And but what's interesting, I see it happen in 12-step programs all mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. where we don't necessarily know one another. And mm-hmm. I think the difference is but we are authentically real. I mean, a 12-step program works and often works better than the church sometimes Mm -hmm. because you have to be authentically real about your failures Mm -hmm. and admit them. And, and, And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get the religious people to do so that he can go to the outsiders and know that they will have a place of welcome. Yeah, and even the... The, the whole beginning of the gospel, and this is something we don't talk about a lot because it makes us uncomfortable. Jesus goes to be baptized and it says, for John's baptism of repentance. Mm-hmm. And we're always like, oh, Jesus was without sin. But he, but he, was, he was humble mm-hmm. and wanting to make sure that he's starting his ministry as he is supposed to. And that if there is anything there, that he's taking care of it. Mm-hmm. Like that's our model is someone that we even think is without sin didn't consider that of themselves right. mm-hmm. and assumed I must have something right. that I need to make right 
in order to offer myself to others. Mm -hmm. And so from the very get-go of the gospel, we have someone with no need to repent, repenting, and that's like the ultimate like start of our ministry in the world is mm -hmm. it always begins with my willingness to humble myself, always begins with, right. with that before. And if that's the model and if that's the work that I'm doing, then mm -hmm. when Jeremy comes and says those things, I'm not going to immediately start defending myself. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm going to sit there and go, oh, I, I want, the world wants me to defend myself, mm -hmm. but I just need to sit in humility and realize there may be something to repent of that I didn't understand right. in myself. Right. And that's, that's being shaped into the form of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that this other person is acting as prophet to me. Right. And they're doing it so that I may become better. I can mm -hmm. become closer to God. I can be a better disciple and a better friend. But that's not how the church has shaped sin. <laughs> the church has shaped sin around shame, uh -huh. <laughs> not around redemption and growth. Mm. I, I think that's... It's around justifying grace, not sanctifying right. grace. <laughs> right. right, right. It's, it, if, if, we, if we talk about sin in a way that when we talk about our sins, it lets us become better people uh -huh. instead of sin making us worse people... Like, right. if I talk about my sin, I get the opportunity to be more like Jesus. If I don't talk about my sin, mm -hmm. eh. yeah. <laughs> I mean, then what? And it's crazy because if I was about to careen off a cliff and someone grabbed me and pulled me back, I'd be like, oh my gosh, they saved me. But if I'm doing that on a path that's destructive in my life and someone calls me to account for it, now all of a sudden I feel like they're my enemy. Right. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. In the, in the same, same situation, the person is my savior. Mm. Um, so it's, it's really just that matter of perspective about, like you said, where am I really? Mm -hmm. And am I, am I really willing to look at where I am and, and admit, okay, this is not a healthy place. And the person who's here saying that is actually rescuing me from the situation mm -hmm. rather than um, being there to harm me. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of your point about the 12-step program, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, <clears throat> sure, those folks don't know each other, right? Mm -hmm. But they share a common experience. Right, mm -hmm. correct. Which makes right. them community. Right, mm -hmm. right. And if, we, and if we saw sin and if we saw our human experience that way, then we would all, then we would when when we recognize someone else's sin or we see somebody else recognizing us, we'd be like, Oh yeah, I always need to be pulling someone off the cliff and I always need someone to be pulling me yes. off the cliff. Which makes us community. Right. Yeah. Which is critique of culture, not up us up and against the culture, but critique of the culture that's in me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That has come into me, that mm -hmm. I have allowed to oversee who I am and who mm -hmm. Jesus is in me. Yeah. Not my will. Will be done. So thanks for staying with us in this again. This really, really <laughs> powerful. I, like that was in chapter seven. I think it was. <laughs> but that's what it means when we. This is this is a great example of what it means to live together in community and take the story that we've learned and go deeper and sit deeper with ourselves in it and with each other in it and let it shape us um, so that we can come back on Sunday and rehearse this story in new ways as we love God and let the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So we'll see you Sunday. Mm -hmm.